0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Roj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends
1: Giselle Donnelly, I also work at AEI, and Julia Joza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Special guest today is Benjamin Talis, who's a senior research fellow at the Alfred von Oppenheim Center for the Future of Europe at the DGAP, the German Council on Foreign Relations, uh, where he also directs the Action Group Zeitenwende. Uh, Benjamin, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much indeed, Talibor. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here
0: on the Eastern Front. Wonderful. And if our listeners enjoyed this episode, they should consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. And I thank them at this at this point, uh, Ben. Um, it's, it's it's a great pleasure to 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 have you here. Uh, we have followed your work for for a very long time, and I think it feels fitting to start with specifically uh, this issue of 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 Zeit und Wende. You know, is it, is it has there been a real seismic change in German approach to foreign and security policy, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe? Uh, has it been a gimmick? How much has changed? How much still needs to change? What are the sort of political dynamics driving this change?
2: Thanks very much indeed. And likewise, I uh, followed your work for a long time too. So it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to have this chat. I often say that the, the Titan vendor is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Um, there has been change and Germany has come a long way. But remember it was starting from a very low baseline in terms of security and strategic thinking um, about a year ago. So I think it's you know, it's important to give credit where credit is due. And for example, in the field of energy and reducing dependency on Russian gas, uh, Germany's made giant strides in in record time, building two new liquid natural gas terminals, Um, at a speed that would be fast for any country, but for Germany really was lightning speed, is is a, a significant statement of intent and a significant demonstration that where there is the will, there is a way to actually change and change significantly. We can talk about the other dependencies that that creates uh, later, but it just does show on its own terms that actually there is there is a will to change, or where there's a will to change, there's a way to do it. Now, of course, that hasn't been matched in other fields. Uh, it hasn't been matched in defence as of yet. The um, much-heralded 100 billion euro special fund for defence, the Sondervermogen, uh, that was part of the vendor speech in the Bundestag last 27th of February um, has been very slow to be used. Uh, key decisions still haven't been made, key basic elements of ammunition still haven't been ordered um and it seems to be stuck in the same kind of bureaucratic process that has mired so much of german decision making and german action for for many years so there hasn't been a significant change of mindset in the way that is needed moreover i think what most people look at when they look at the titan vendor is germany's support to ukraine or lack of it um or the difficulties which there has been in generating that support at the right time and of the right kind the feeling is very much um to use use a phrase that I've I've used before, that Germany has moved at the speed of shame on that, that it's actually been bounced into making most of the decisions that it's made in terms of big material steps forward in uh, support for Ukraine. So sending howitzers, sending multiple launch rocket systems, and most recently sending tanks at the behest of others, really. And it's not been something that Germany has been willing to lead on. It's not something that Germany, and particularly the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has seemed particularly keen on doing, but rather something that it's been pressed into doing. And unfortunately, that's created a dynamic whereby it's seen by allies that shaming Germany actually works. And this creates a problem then also for German buy-in to change, because if it seems as though it's coming from outside rather than internally, it's not something that I think is politically and socially sustainable. So I think there's there's some good, there's some bad. There's a long way to go before we could talk about a real titan vendor.
3: Ben, if I could, I'd like to pick a bit. Um, I mean, I think, uh, your, your framework there is uh, is a quite uh, accurate and useful one, but I'd like to peel it back a little bit, particularly in regard to the question of, of energy. You're quite right that the Germans have uh, done yeoman work to switch their own um, energy producing uh, sort of, uh, you know, the whole, the system, in a way to uh, make up for the loss of of Russian gas. However, you know, if if part of the measure of a zeitenwende is is Germany willing to step forward and play a constructive leadership role across Europe, I'm not even sure you can say that on a, the energy front because the the gas question remains hugely problematic elsewhere. Let me let me sorry, I'm just kind of making this up as I go along do you think it would be fair to judge germany by the willingness to help transform the european energy system by mean the, by which i mean uh, sources of supply but also things like the energy grid and the distribution of uh, power across the continent to make the continent or at least western europe or western and Eastern and Central Europe, non, non-Russian Europe, more resilient and so that the Russians will not be able to consider using their energy uh, production as a, a strategic weapon henceforth. I'm sorry if that's a long and winding question. I was thinking on my feet and you can see what happens when I do that.
2: Not not at all. I think it points to two of what I think are the central questions about the Titan vendor. And the first part of it is what constitutes a Titan vendor? Actually, what level of ambition here should we be should we be talking about? Is it proactive or reactive? Is it just a response to the Russian reinvasion of Ukraine, the accelerated Russian aggression? Or is it actually something of a bigger, deeper, proactive change? Is it uh, a policy adjustment or a course correction, or is it something bigger, again, a more thoroughgoing change that would actually um, do the kind of things that you mentioned there? So I think actually you've really pointed to two, two points I'd like to draw out a little more. On the question of leadership, this is a very fraught question in relation to Germany, because German politicians, um, including the uh, now departed uh, Defense Minister, Christina Lambrecht, have repeatedly talked about being a Führungsmacht or a leading power. And Lambrecht even said that Germany is a leading power by default because of its size, because of its economic weight um, and so on. But I'm not not convinced by this. To be a leader, you have to be followed and you have to have people willing to follow you. And that's not really the case in Europe at the moment. Uh, There's not a lot of followership for German leadership because there's a lack of vision, because there's a lack of coherence, there's a lack of consistency. Um, And there's a lack of willingness to make the kind of depth of changes that you're talking about. Um, I think there's also a, a problem of competing visions in Europe. The French vision for the future of Europe largely appeals to France. The Polish vision for the future largely appeals to Poland. Germany doesn't have a vision, um, but is worried about the emergence of others' visions. I mean, where the where the ideas battle is really being won is in North, Central, Eastern Europe, um, in the capitals of the Baltic states, in Prague, in Helsinki. These are the, the capitals that are seeing things clearly. And so I don't think we can really talk of German leadership, we can talk of German power. And I think this is where there is a point that there is a almost a power by default, but it comes through Germany's interconnection with others, the level of economic interconnection, the level of regulatory interconnection through the European Union. And that's the way actually Germany has sought to exercise power in the past, almost power by denial. Of that power, uh, so working through submerging its interests in what it imagined or its leaders imagined to be the common European interest, something that's been very much contested, um, but also by setting up systems of rules that benefit its own companies, corporations, and uh, society, often at the expense of of others. And I think you're right to say that a true change there would look to a properly articulated and properly calculated continental wide interest set together with others, rather than at the expense of others and then by reducing the kind of dependencies that have proven to be so costly um, in in the past. Also in the energy field, we can uh, look at the new dependencies that Germany's move has created, the dependencies on um, Middle Eastern autocracies uh, for natural gas uh, in particular, Um, but also then the willingness to act alone uh, in what both Paris and Warsaw have described as a Germany first way, um, on, for example, capping energy prices for domestic consumers here in a way that wasn't consulted um, properly around the block. So that doesn't speak to either coordination or the depth of change or the vision for a future that could inspire followership. That I think you're um, you're, you're rightly you get to. A little bit points also to the confusion within Germany about energy policy, the difficulties that the Green Party in particular, who have been some of the strongest drivers of change, who have been the clearest view on, who had the clearest view on Russia they're still clinging to some of their sacred cows. No revival of nuclear power. Um, and instead have have taken the bizarre step of increasing use of coal to generate um, power in the interim period. Now, you could say that's a stopgap measure, but will we actually get to the promised land of renewables, or is this just going to actually create further confusion down the line? That remains an an open question, and we've seen that cause into controversy with Greta Thunberg and others in the protests recently that have emerged, which really point to the need for a more thoroughgoing uh, rethink of German policy across different policy fields,
3: it does remind me a bit of German behavior in the financial crisis of the late aughts, you know, the, the, the complaints that Southern Europeans had about uh, about that, and, and also the immigration uh, surge of, uh, you know, 10 years or so ago. Again, those both seemed like Germany-first impulses. Definitely to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's that's very interesting. I think on the, the question of the Eurozone crisis and the relations to the great financial crisis, a lot of people would see that that analogy. And this is something I often point to when some uh, german commentators say yes but we haven't been able to pursue our own interests we've been so shy about pursuing our own interests because of the culture that we developed after the second world war you know ask greece ask portugal italy spain ireland i think they might might disagree ruthless pursuit of interest in a very belligerent way just through economic rather than military means and wolfgang schäuble stands as an absolute figure par excellence of this i mean it's it's really remarkable how quickly that memory has been erased I'd perhaps push back slightly on the uh, the migration example because i think that's that's a case where germany took action that was for the good of europe acting on its own as one of the few to stand up and do what should have been a european-wide job of burden sharing on the increased wave of um of migrants coming into the eu and i, I touch upon a lot of that in in a future book that's actually coming out next uh, next month um which looks at the relations between identities borders and orders in in europe and I think that's that's a Sounds case where like German leadership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a bit to talk about there for sure, um, but there's and that's a case where German leadership actually could have been stronger. Had Merkel, for example, at the time, having taken this decision that indeed it was the right thing to do to open the open the doors. Um, actually turning the screws a little bit on some of the Central European countries and say, well, look, if you don't pull your weight here, we're going to shut down Schengen, um, which Germany, like no other country, could do because of this interconnection, then I think we might have seen a slightly different um, different outcome to that. So I think you're totally right on the financial crisis part. I would, as I say, push back a little on the migration part. And the last thing I'd say to that is that the success of Germany in integrating um, migrants who have arrived since 20, 2014, of which there have been many is an underreported success story in the uh, in the country if if i may um
0: before handing it over to to to, to you yeah, i just just pull this through.
3: you get the next half hour uh, for,
0: for, 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 for for just a second longer uh, it strikes me that there has always been um a sort of strong aversion in post war germany to to framing political problems as questions of of power and interest and and and, and, and conflict if you will hence uh the german approach to the eurozone crisis or to to a certain extent to 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 the refugee crisis of 2015 has 2016 has always been cloaked uh as uh as being about rules and technocracy and sort of devising rules based solutions and that has very often sort of obfuscated the real sort of power politics that has been that has been in in sort of actually actually happening uh in a, in a way that i don't think has necessarily you know, helped the sort of health of of, of of especially the sort of democratic side of the of the European project, and I think I, I think I would I would sort of address that criticism even to the German response to to, to the refugee crisis and particularly you know the, the sort of Commission's proposal of having you know relocation quotas and a sort of like a technocratic fix to what was essentially a political problem and a sort of deep political disagreement between 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 member states.
1: We're going now on a on a completely deviated <laughs> topic, but I can't help myself to weighing in on that too. I want to point out two things in the refugee crisis as well. One is the rules that were created before the refugee crisis were pushed by Germany in having the Dublin Agreement, not the quota system. So they went over the heads without consulting anybody, went over the heads of everybody to change the rules that they created. And the second thing is how we frame that. Yes, we had a refugee crisis coming from the south, and central and eastern European countries have not being on the right side of history, but we don't differentiate. We focus on putting everybody into one category, forgetting that at that point, um, Poland had been hosting almost 2 million Ukrainians that we didn't brand as refugees because we didn't want to brand it as a war, but they had an argument too saying, you know, we've already taken those in.
2: Yeah, I think very good points there, which I I, I take uh, fully. Um, the,
1: For your book, well, <laughs> it's last second, right? <laughs> it does, yeah,
2: it does address some of those, those issues and the differentiated ways that this discourse around rules, discourse around common responsibility has been used to actually victimize or to stigmatize certain countries and not others, and the core versus non-core Europe debate and how that continued through this. And we've seen that again in, in this year as well in various forms. Uh, about Ukrainian accession, um, membership criteria, so on and so forth, and the old hierarchies being presented in new ways. What what I'd really emphasize, I guess, is that um, the European Union and its member states, through those rules that they created, turned inward migration into a crisis. There was no migration crisis that just happened. This was something of our own making. Um, the capacity constraints that were supposed to be there have been shown this year, above all years, to be nonsense and to have been rubbish from beginning to end. And this was, a, a as you say, a really, very clear political decision that was made. Um, what I would say, though, is that some of the countries involved in that, while willing to benefit from the common area of free movement, and willing to accept they had a common border to police, were not willing to contribute to a common migration policy, and were not willing to actually contribute to the responsibilities of that. So that, even on its own terms, that system wasn't working. You're right, then, this got countermanded by by Germany, having overwritten its own own rules to an extent. But all the seeds of that crisis were sown in the the loss of the political argument about the benefits of inward migration in general, and the loss of the balanced debate about migration which still needs to be had. Um, and I think we could also see in some of the comments that have been made this year, I mean, Kirill Petkov stands to mind where he says, you know, this is about people who are culturally similar to us now coming in, the Ukrainians, uh, educated mm-hmm. people and so on which rather had a disparaging look at the previous groups of inward migrants who were coming before um, and revealed, again, some latent problems in the way that this is uh, this is discussed.
1: Certainly. Um, since we're doing now a deep dive into European security and taking advantage of, um, of your presence here, Ben, I want to continue that because you're looking in a very interesting uh, way at both Germany and Central and Eastern Europe And I'm particularly interested, and I want to ask you about the relationship between them. You sort of alluded to that a couple of times uh, throughout um, our conversation so far. But I basically want to ask you how you see this relationship evolving, um, whether you see a chance for the dynamic to change a bit. I remember in 2012, when it was high time, for a new second European security strategy. Back then, Poland um, and Romania, back then I was serving um, with the, for the Romanian former president, we were both pushing for a new security strategy that would include the threat perceptions and security issues of the newer member states. And there was no way to get, no matter how hard we worked, and try to butter up germany and france it 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 was just completely blocked and um then we had a late security strategy i know you were a part of um advising there too and so you and i know that the threat perceptions uh, particularly around russia did not did not reach, as Germans would say, consensus to be able to be included as much as they should have been. And we know that particularly when we look at leaders from the Green Party, there's a lot of reckoning with that, um, that I think is very important um, for Germany moving ahead. You mentioned a bit earlier the relationship between Germany and France. To me, with everything going on, the most important relationship is now becoming the one between Germany and Poland. And Poland does have a vision that many now increasingly adhere to. The question is, to what extent do you think there's wiggle room for germany to embrace more of the baltic slash polish vision um we when you know when there was the leopard debate there wasn't much hope for me in that context because from from this point of view because the uk put out the challenger tanks and germany said Well, we cannot if the Americans are completely ignoring the UK as if it's not an actor. And also the fact that, you know, Poland had delivered Soviet-era tanks or Soviet-made tanks from the same era in the hundreds a few months earlier. So with putting that all on your plate now, asking you the question, how do you see this relationship evolving? Do you think there will be more of Germany listening to as, you know, the economic leader still or power um, within the European Union and moving sort of the center of gravity willingly more towards the East with the issues that we have. Or do you see the same resistance as, you know, we've seen through the last
2: decade? Great questions that cut really to the heart of it. And I I think actually also relate to what Dalibor said before um, about the culture of power, culture of interest, culture of statecraft in Germany versus Mm -hmm. the culture in other other states too. So let me try and bring those things together just a, a little bit. I think that While to say something quickly on the Polish vision and you said the Polish Baltic vision, I I would draw a distinction between the two, because I think on foreign and security policy, broadly understood, there is commonality, but on domestic policy, there's not. And I would strongly connect the two also because they relate to how intra-European union relationships work between different countries as well. I say that particularly because there's been a very strong pushback in Germany this year against the idea of Polish leadership and against the idea of leadership from Central Eastern Europe more widely because of perceptions about retrograde kinds of anti-deluvian politics in those countries. So they point to Polish nationalism or they point to the PIS government's clampdown on abortion rights, on uh, rights for homosexuals and t- cultures of tolerance and so on. Now, unfortunately, that gets Tarred, the whole region ends up getting tarred with that brush, which is really unfair, given how the very different political cultures in Central and Eastern Europe operate. But it also tells you something about how German debate deals with Central Eastern Europe as well, that it's still a, a mythical zone somehow of little, little knowledge and much prejudice um, when, it's, when it's dealt with. And let, let ignorance be no barrier, barrier to ag- arrogance in that, that debate, um, sadly still. What I've I've been encouraged by also, as you said, is the reckoning with that on the part of certain politicians, and that's actually not only been the Green Party, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Bundestag, Mikhail Roth, who's from Scholz's Social Democrat Party, but has taken quite a different point of view on Ukraine and, and other issues has specifically apologized for Germany, quote-unquote, trampling over the agency of Central East European countries in the last decade and has suggested that the inquiry that should be launched into the conduct of German leaders after the uh, end of the Cold War and their attitude towards independence movements in Central Eastern Europe, their attitude towards NATO and EU enlargement um, should be extended into the last uh, last 10 to 15 years, during which time Germany's geoeconomic policy, which over- Overrode any kind of overt geopolitical policy um, at least in its in its um, methods let 's say uh, has had such a detrimental effect on the region and so I think that kind of reckoning is really welcome, but there 's still been a need to assert a moral superiority which has been at the heart of German politics and german self worth in politics. Uh, since the, the way that Germany tried to make amends for and move on from its conduct in the Second World War. And I think a lot of people would look at that and say there's been admirable progress that was made in that regard, but it unleashed a form of politics that required this moral superiority. Which then manifests itself in if you cut in things like if you're unable to deal with the substance of a critique, you police the tone. So this is what Andrei Melnik, the uh, Ukrainian ambassador here, faced uh, very strongly. It's what Central Eastern Europeans of all kinds of criticizing Germany for its policy on Russia have faced. And I think there's there's the negative side of that, which is really this deep-seated need for moral superiority, that that has to be overcome if Germany is going to have a better policy towards Central Eastern Europe and a better policy more generally. Um, but there's also, there's other parts of that which relate to the kind of post-national, post-heroic and post-victorious and post-conflict culture that pervaded German public life after the Second World War, and particularly in the second half of the or the last quarter of the 20th century, where there was this reckoning with the past and an idea that it had been time to move on from those old, outdated ideas. Um, And we hear this repeatedly referred back to. But that, of course, comes into contrast when Central East European states say, based on our national and our historical experience, based on our national identity, we take a different point of view towards Russia, for example, which is shown to be more realistic. Now, Germans have been very critical of that sort of rally round the flag effect. And even some Germans have criticized Ukrainians for, for overt nationalism during this year, which I find just a remarkable uh, thing to, to say in the worst possible way. Um, but overcoming those issues will actually, I think, point to a deeper Titan vendor that does need to take place, which indeed is required if there's going to be a better intra-European union relation. Very quickly, last thing on, your, on the security strategies and so on. Yes, this, this was never going to work because of those different threat perceptions, because of those fundamentally different threat perceptions and trying to make those into a common threat perception when you don't take the concerns of others seriously was really never never going to fly. And also when you can't do anything about it, you don't have the means to actually act upon those things. Uh, you, and what was very clearly realized in Central Eastern Europe was that this risked the EU and its member states talking themselves into a game, into a fight they couldn't win. And so that, I think, um, overcoming that this year has been a um, a priority as well.
1: I'm keeping my fingers crossed for the new security strategy, whatever that might be, and um, that these voices are heard then much more. But uh, taking the prerogative of the next question, we cannot let you go mm-hmm. without asking you about neo-idealism.
3: Actually, but before, I, I think there's a good, I'm sorry to be a pill here, but I did want to sort of Continue the previous discussion, which I think is a good uh, segue to neo-idealism. I also think Dalibor was also uh, uh, busting it, it seems, uh, uh, as well. But since I've got the microphone, I'm, <laughs> I'm good. So this is an interesting sort of nexus of domestic politics, cultural politics, and international politics. And there, there are two things that strike me. First of all, I mean, I think some of the criticisms, say, of you know, Polish nationalism, especially Hungarian nationalism, um, there are different kinds of Eastern European nationalism. And Ukrainian nationalism is turning out to be something that's mm-hmm. quite liberal. I do think that it would be difficult for the Poles to play as large a role as they may have ambitions for if they stick to their sort of... Um, Blood and soil, if you can handle that term, definition of what Polish nationalism is. And, of course, the Balts have long passed that, as have the other Scandinavian countries. Um, and uh, Dalibor this might be a good idea to ask Ben what he thinks about the new Czech president, whether that's a step forward toward uh, I'm trying to pack all our... Uh, our agenda into one question. Um, we, we are a terribly disorganized bunch. We are well, like this is of filing issue on issue. Ben is, is such a, a multivariate guest that there's so much that we can ask him about. Let, let's spend
0: the next 10 minutes sort of digging somewhat deeper in this, into this question of Central European neo-idealism, this sort of you know, term that you've coined, which refers, if I understand it correctly, to the legacy of political leaders of, say, the 1990s, who understood, uh, who took seriously the sort of historic experience of the region, who took seriously um, the relationships that these countries have been building with with, with the West, and who uh, were adamant that the region needed a values-based foreign policy, as opposed to yeah. a very sort of transactional uh, materialistic attitude towards towards relations with with, with with great power so how how do you see this region at this particular juncture in 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 in, in, in time and, and and what's the sort of potential of 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 this this idea of neo-idealism exercising larger influence on on european policymaking?
2: Well, thanks. That I I love the questions coming from different angles and the all of the different things you've raised. I'm really grateful to you actually for taking such time and depth to to go through different things that I've I've worked on. Um, so let me take neo idealism in general first, and then I'm actually going to link it to that question of nationalism because that's part of the part of the question too. And then to other aspects of domestic policy, which will refer us back to Germany and changes that need to to make. So let's see if I can manage that. As one, <laughs> one if you can point. do that, one we'll and, come up uh, with something
3: even wackier.
2: <laughs> please do next challenge. Um, okay, so yeah, neo idealism is at the moment something that I've I've. I think I've identified the the first stirrings of, let's say, in the responses that we've seen from North and Central East European countries to Russia's um, escalated aggression against against Ukraine. Uh, it's also aspirational in terms of saying what I think should happen. There's a normative element to this. And I explain in the book why that is and in, in some of the essays that are coming out as well. And there's also a performative element to it that by giving it a name and giving it some conceptualization, I think there's something that can be cohered around and used. So there's it's not to say that it's a fully formed thing yet, but also trying to bring it into existence from some stirrings that I've, I've noticed. And those are particularly around the way that countries such as the Czech Republic uh, or the governments of countries such as the Czech Republic, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, but also Finland, As the prime movers in this have responded to that enhanced russian aggression i think and i distinguish that from the way for example the polish government has done this because while the polish government has been incredibly strong on material support for ukraine they do it on a different basis they do it on a a much more conservative and overtly conservative basis whereas what i'm looking at is mainly liberal ideals and how liberal ideals have been upheld, uh, how their liberal idealism as a form of politics um, that was dormant perhaps in the region has been revived this year. So politicians like Jan Lipabsky in the Czech Republic drawing on the heritage of Václav Havel and the politicians from the 1990s. A uh, similar thing for Kaya Kallas drawing on the generation of Estonian politicians from the 1990s, at Landsbergis as well in in, in Lithuania. It, a different experience for Finland, of course, but I think what we've seen is the same commitment from Marin and others to this really morally grounded foreign policy and morally grounded approach to geopolitics. So what is it? I think it's it's a form of geopolitics or even grand strategy that is driven by small states at this point, which is unusual for a, a first thing. Small states don't often tend to do grand strategy, but it's grounded in the, the notion that values can be conceived as ideals to strive for. And actually by doing so, you create values as interests of their own. So working towards these values actually it's an interest. It should be treated as a national interest rather than a sort of optional extra of wouldn't it be nice to do values based policy. It's that this is actually at the heart of the interest of free and democratic societies because it supports liberal ordering, which allows democratic states to actually, yeah, classic thing of making the world safe for democracy, if you like, and making the world safe for for liberal democracies in particular, but also a stronger commitment to actually delivering on liberal values domestically. And so this is where I distinguish it from um, the approach in in Poland, but also from historical approaches to so-called idealism in IR, where you would look at someone like Woodrow Wilson as a flag bearer for this, but as we all know, Wilson was a terrible racist. And so this didn't really actually speak to what we would consider to be idealism worthy of the name in our current time. So what I claim is that actually what this more thoroughgoing commitment to rights, freedoms, to democracy and to liberal values, but also crucially to the hope of progress that has been missing from liberalism in the last 15 years or so, to restoring that actually gives you what could really be considered a thoroughgoing idealist model at the domestic and the international level. And so it links those from the domestic to the international and actually suggests that this is a way for democracies to not only defend themselves, which is essential in a systemic competition, but also for them to thrive in future. Now, that's going to require a lot more uh, socioeconomic change in these societies than we've seen so far. And that, for me, is the, sort of the big missing part of the puzzle. But what I certainly know is that it is that it means not making the same kind of mistakes economically that Germany has continued to make in terms of authoritarian dependencies. Let me say a last thing on nationalism in relation to that, because that question came up before, and I want to say that it's it's what what I would see is that the particular historical national experiences that have partly driven this approach to politics are a real indicator of how you can use national identity and national community as a force for progressive causes, and I mean that in the broadest sense, um, rather than for. Um, a, pernicious causes of different kinds. We often see in Europe, in particular, nationalism given a very bad name. And that's also because it's seen as something that you have to overcome on the way to a European-type politics. But if nationalism is not um, essentialized, and if it's not exclusive, but rather it's civic and performative, uh, then I think you can you can work towards a more progressive understanding of that. And that's something supported by the scholars of nationalism, like Sinisa Maleshevich, uh, or Rogers Brubaker and others. Um, so basically progressives evacuating themselves from nationalism has caused a problem whereby it only becomes owned by by uh, people on the right. I think we can address that. And I think it's all part of the same thing about building diverse and uh, yet still cohesive societies where we share the benefits of progress more widely.
1: I want to ask you just very quickly a follow-up on that. In relationship to exactly that, um, what you're describing, smaller liberal approaches um, to the issue of security, opposing them or at least separating them from Poland. I know that we tend to, and particularly in Europe, we tend to label Poland because of domestic issues as non-liberal nationalism. But if you're looking at both performative action and narratives um, that the poles have adopted in relationship to Ukraine and the region in trying to sort of leverage leadership and position themselves, you know, The first visit was Moraviecki, the prime minister, who pulled along the Czech and the Slovenian because the Slovak wouldn't come um, and the Baltics neither. And uh, when he was there, he said in Ukraine, this is a fight that Ukrainians are doing for all of our values and freedom. And they keep coming back to that. And if you're looking also at the bilateral relationship, overcoming historical nationalism and huge grievances, setting an example for the region that some have been able to follow more so than others, particularly neighbors of Ukraine, with minorities thinking Hungary and Romania, um, overcoming that and embracing you know millions of Ukra- of Ukrainians that are not put like in Germany in refugee camps but in homes to me that 's a very modern, liberal form of you know creating regional cohesiveness. So aren't we not, you know, serving against the purpose of cohesiveness when we are excluding sometimes Poland because of the issues that they have domestically on one side? Um, And I know they trickle in and I acknowledge that you're entirely right. And then secondly, aren't we doing a disservice by calling it neo-idealism so that the Scholzes of the world and the Macrons of the world will come and say well we're pragmatists, we cannot lead European security based on idealism. So just quick challenges on that.
0: I have actually, if I I may just add one more challenge because we are continuing in in our tradition of being terribly disorganized and also because (laughs) we are running out of time and because this is just so interesting. Uh, One danger that I I see and have sort of thought about this for a while is is related to really sort of how, how thick your sort of neo-idealist conception is in a, in the context of countries that are very polarized. Of course, you could find very compelling avatars for your neo-idealism in places like Slovakia with Zuzana Chaputova, in places like Poland. You look at, you know, talk to Rafał Trzaskowski or even, even in Hungary. Uh, however, in those places, uh, it is far from clear that that, foreign policy outlook necessarily commands very wide popular support, even in the Czech context. I mean, you know, like we might be heartened by the victory of Petr Pavel, but he faced Babish in the runoff. Babish used thinly veiled anti-Ukrainian tropes in the campaign. He clearly was thinking that it would work. It didn't work, but but still, I mean, the you know, Havel's legacy in the Czech Republic is not a sort of uncontested An uncontested one so 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 i suspect that in order to make this work uh it might be useful to try to make it somewhat less ambitious and thinner in a way that could also accommodate you know the sort of Morawiecki's of the world in 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 the context of a of a discussion Mm -hmm. over over ukraine because i mean you know one of the funny things about poland is that polarized as that country is and it comes really close to to the American situation in in many respects and the sort of mutual distrust and the hate that people have on both sides of the political divide there is one thing that they agree on which is the centrality of the transatlantic partnership the danger that Russia poses and and the sort of real commitment to you know sort of Poland's independence going forward and so so that's something that sort of we try, should try i suppose to find ways to tap into and sort of channel towards
2: good users.
3: I'll let Ben speak, but I want 10 <laughs> seconds after he's done.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Let me let me come to each of those points, which are really important and really good. And I'm grateful to you both for, for bringing those those up. The first and the last relate to each other, I think. So when Morawiecki was in Kiev and he talked about defending our values, the question is how much... Do I share Morawiecki's values? How much do we share Morawiecki's values? What are the R and who is the the us there? And what are the values we're talking about? If we're talking about self-determination for states and we're talking about the right to avoid spheres of influence and to join of their own volition spheres of integration like European Union, like NATO, for uh, democracies not to have their borders violated and so on. Absolutely. There's a huge amount of sharing of that. And this is why I said on the foreign and security policy side, or the more explicitly foreign and security policy side of that, I think there's a huge commonality that, Dalibor, you rightly point to, goes across the political divides and the social divides that are present in almost all the societies you just mentioned. I think Slovakia, Poland, Czech Republic, prime cases of, of that. That's also why I'm quite careful to distinguish between talking about the governments and the societies at various times. But although there's, there's clear links between, between the two, on domestic values, there's not that coherence. And interestingly, I mean, you know, you, I'm glad you would see it. There's a victory for democracy that Petr Pavel beat uh, Andrei Babish. Uh, and I enjoyed your piece in, uh, in, in Politico on that. But whereas a lot of people have said to me, oh, Petr Pavel, this is a victory for neo-idealism. I said, well, let's wait and see. On foreign and security policy, yes, it looks very much like that. I'd be interested to see what president Pavel does on inward migration and migration from countries which quote according to his team when I interviewed them in the run up to the uh, to the election are not culturally similar to the Czech Republic. Now I I'm pushing a particular vision of neo idealism it doesn't have to be the only one there may be some uh, more broad conceptions of this but I think learning from the mistakes of the past about um, overly exclusive societies that limit the benefits to us of migration, about learning from uh, overly exclusive forms of our own identity. I don't think that's in the best interest. And I think a much more thoroughgoing conception of liberal idealism is actually indeed the point of difference that this could, could make. It brings the ideals to idealism, if you like, and makes it more more thoroughgoing, which is why I don't think a thinner version of this would necessarily be the right way to go, because I think it sells, sells us short in a number of ways. As for facing down the pragmatist challenge of Schultz, I don't particularly worry about that. I think he's his own worst salesperson in this regard. There's no future with that model. And this this is the point, that Schultz is living in the world of yesterday. The dead-end neoliberalism that he's clinging to is inspiring precisely no one and was really the cause, I think, of a lot of the problems that we face, including the causes of a lot of the divisions in societies that that you you mentioned, Dalibor. And so I think actually this restoration of the hope of progress that would come from... Uh, than more neo-idealist approach is precisely what I would juxtapose to that and say, okay, let pragmatism go. If you want more pragmatism, it's more of the same and the same that is no longer tenable. If you want to go back to a realist conception like Macron is working with and prioritise great power politics, well, that's really not going to be in the interests of Central Eastern European states. But also, I don't think it's in the interests of democratic states more widely. And this is why I've advocated that all democracies should start thinking like smaller states. And that includes the US at least in this uh, regard to liberal ordering anyway.
3: Okay, my quick punctuation mark here. My solution to this conundrum would be to start thin and get as thick as you can, as quick as you can, and not be content with the minimum level of uh, uh, of uh, shared ideals that's sufficient for a security mm-hmm. coalition. I, I don't think a a thin Uh, approach to liberalism will be a durable one finally i would say there's obviously a huge role for the united states in fostering this uh which i think behooves us to do uh since we sort of gave up on, on the process you know 20 years or so ago it it is in part our responsibility that 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 there's been backsliding on uh liberalism uh, across eastern europe and it's you know again if it's going to be a durable coalition you, right you've got states that are have um, you know that are a herd of cats and they need something to they need an ideological glue uh, in order to function as a an efficient coalition so that's that that's my <laughs> that's my final intervention on this one Ben, before we wrap up, you should do a little um, salesmanship on "From Ukraine with Love," uh, your most recent uh, work that's come out. So, uh, if you will introduce our audience to to that, it's gotten uh, great reviews and uh, uh, congratulations on that. But if you could introduce it to our audience, that would be great.
2: That, that's really kind of you. Thank you. And perhaps by uh, by doing so i can also say something back to your point which i think is really important that you you raised it and this question of the level of ambition of neo idealism versus its ability to build a coalition is is one that i wrestle with a lot but let me say why i go on the on the high side of that and that will be then the introduction to the to the book is that i think what what i've really noticed this year in positive terms in the last the last year just gone is two things the demand for quality analysis and information about issues relating to the war and relating to the context of the war and why it matters and why people should actually care about this and i've been really heartened to see how people have responded to um, the kind of writings that we we all do, um, the kind of things we put on Twitter, the kind of things that we engage with in public debate, and that I think has come from a recognition that this is indeed our fight, and also that it's a fight for something bigger than just the very particular front that is uh, going that is being taking place in Ukraine, or that front of the conflict that's taking place in Ukraine, and that's because partly of the way that Zelensky, uh, as well as the other leaders I mentioned earlier, have shown that this is about the fight for our values, for morals and ideals that are bigger than each of us. And that all of us can actually do something about that by standing up and being counted, and standing up and not being, as one person I know put it, not being the mush that the Kremlin relied, us, relied on us being. Right? Actually standing taller, walking straighter, doing more, and being being part of something bigger than ourselves. And it's that part of idealism that also appeals to me, is that actually there is a, a moral calling here. There is a notion of the good. That goes beyond any notion of, of equality or of justice or the kind of rules based things that we've seen driving our liberalism in the last 20 years. There was a clear idea that this is better and that we should actually be standing up and fighting for it where it's threatened and giving it new energy in order to be able to not only survive, but thrive. And that's what the collection of essays in the book is really, really about. There's a collection of essays that I wrote over the last year, plus a couple of new pieces that really put the biggest exploration so far of neo-idealism onto onto paper. Um, And it was was by the kind of responses that I got on social media, as well as in public debates, uh, that encouraged me to do it, to say, you know, people do want this kind of information and also they want to be inspired. And there's something there to say, okay, if we can make put this inspiration in a coherent package, there's something we can do with it politically. So that's the reason for uh, To Ukraine With Love, essays on Russia's war and Europe's future. And the emphasis is on both. It's also on the future, and it's beyond Europe's future, of course, as well. It's all democracy's future. But that's what uh, what the book's about. And thanks very much for giving me the chance to talk about it.
0: Benjamin Talis, thank you so much. I mean, the fact that we've run so much over our usual time time limits is a reflection of, of how much fun we've had <laughs> in this you know, political theory special <laughs> version of, of the Eastern Front. And I would be very keen to to do it again very soon. From Talibor O'Haj, Giselle Donnelly, and Julia Zorza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.